Welcome to another episode of the Real Estate Market Minute, your home for news, the latest trends, and analysis on the U.S. real estate market, as well as your personal how-to guide on real estate investing. This episode is brought to you by Audible. If I'm not listening to a podcast, I'm listening to an audiobook on Audible. Audible is the best way to find and listen to your next book. Visit audibletrial.com slash realestatemarketminute for a free book and a free 30-day trial on me. Guys, I had a great guest come on the show. Her name is Natalie Kalati. She's an investor in real estate. She's an enrolled IRS agent. She's a real estate tax strategist. And I mean, if I don't have, if, if there's nothing more I tell you, she's been on Bigger Pockets money. She, she was a speaker at the Bigger Pockets Con 2022 tax panel. She was terrific. If you're an investor uh, of real estate, if you are uh, you know, just a buyer or seller of a home, real estate agents, listen up. This is this is someone you want to connect your clients with. She's got it all. I want you to listen in on this. It was a terrific discussion on taxes and real estate, and I think you're going to like it. All right, guys, I am here with Natalie Colodi. Natalie is a real estate investor, IRS enrolled agent. She's also a real estate tax strategist. And she's been on multiple real estate podcasts, including Bigger Pockets Money, Weiss Advice, and Invest Her, and was most recently a speaker on the Bigger Pockets Con 2022 tax panel. You can learn much more about Natalie at Colotax, that's K O L O tax.com, and R E tax strategist, strategist, excuse me.com. Natalie, welcome to the show. Great to have you. And thanks for coming on. Yeah, I'm really happy to be here, Mark. Thanks for having me to uh, chat about taxes a little bit. Yeah, I appreciate it. It's something that, I mean, for sure, a lot of our audience, and we have so many investors that listen to the show, and they're going to love, I think, what you have to say. Um, Do me a favor. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Just give me some info on your background, especially when it comes to how you got into tax strategy and uh, how you got where you are today. Yeah, absolutely. So I got into tax and real estate at kind of the same time. So I went to school for tax. And then right when I graduated and started working in public accounting, um, I kind of got interested in real estate. And I went to one of the weekend like guru seminars, which I don't typically recommend. um, But it was what kind of got me interested in it. And then as a result of that, I ended up on bigger pockets, just trying to learn more about real estate. And while I was on there, um, while I was learning real estate, I was also helping answer people's real estate-specific tax questions. And so the two really just kind of grew at the same time and kind of got me to where I am today, which is working, um, owning my own firm and working just exclusively with real estate investors. That's terrific. Um, So on that note, since clearly you started out in real estate, which I love because you got that background, and then you obviously now are a tax strategist specifically for real estate, especially. So let's get into, give me some, you know, if I'm an investor and I'm listening, give me some just, you know, of the most common, maybe just your top ones as far as real estate, you know, tax related mistakes. Like what are some of those common mistakes that investors make that they just overlook or they don't even realize that they're doing? Yeah, I would say the most common mistakes that we see tie into depreciation, which is how you get to create losses on properties without actually losing money. It's getting to write off some of the value of the house each year. Um, And what we see there a lot is people not separating out the land portion of what you can write off. So when you buy a house, 
Um, you only get to depreciate the building. Land doesn't wear off over time, basically. So you have to make sure you're using a method, um, like look at the county assessor, something like that, to separate out the land portion. Don't depreciate all of it. Um, or people not taking depreciation at all. You'll hear people say that they're worried about you know, recapture later when you sell because you pay a little more tax on the part that was depreciated. Um, but it's not optional. So if you don't take depreciation when you do sell, you're going to pay that tax either way, but you've missed out on the write-off year to year. So you just want to make sure that's kind of the biggest mistake area is that you're A, depreciating your rentals and B, um, that you're either working with someone who knows how to do that in the most advantageous way possible or that you spend some time researching it. But this is where we see kind of a lot of missed money or just a lot of mistakes that need correction later on. I see. And so you that that's part of what you do, right, to help investors is sort of give them that advice. Uh, when you work with investors, is that something that you do for them specifically? Yeah, absolutely. So that's kind of one of the key differences and people should be mindful of if they're working with just sort of a tax preparer, which is someone you're just going to meet, you know, this time of year, you just sit down once a year and, you know, February, March, and they take your numbers and put it on a form versus someone who's more of a tax strategist or tax planner. They're going to work with you throughout the year um, and kind of look at these big picture things and um, look at different options and different tax planning opportunities and basically give you proactive advice versus reactive. If you're only talking to your tax person when you're filing your taxes, the year's already over. So you're kind of limited on what you can do. So that's kind of the difference with um, working with someone throughout the year who's going to um, help guide you through those choices and make sure things are being done in the most advantageous way possible. I love that. So you're helping people out from the beginning. You're strategizing, even, you know, they start their planning and their investing strategy, you're, you're there right at the beginning and then every step of the way throughout the entire adventure, I guess, which is really, really great. No one thinks like that. You're right. They think just, hey, I'm going to go ahead and make an investment. And I'll deal with it when I do my taxes and my account and we'll figure everything out. So I like that. That's great. All right. Um, give us then some ways that you can make some money. Um, you know, I'm an investor. I want to make some money with real estate. That's what we all want. So we all look to do. Um, but hey, I want to take advantage of this and I, and I, and I want to try to make it tax free as much as possible. Can I do this? Tell me how I can do this. Yeah, there's a few different ways, but one of the most, honestly, one of the best strategies and most overlooked um, options for investing in real estate tax free is the primary home exemption, the 121 exclusion. So what this means is basically if you live in a home if you own it and live in it for two of the last five years, you can sell that home. And if you're single, you're allowed to exclude up to $250,000 of gain. Or if you're married, that's up to $500,000. And so what this means is you can do a live and flip where you live in that property for two years, do a full renovation while you're living in it. And then when you sell it, that can be tax-free. And there's really not a lot of other ways that once every two years, you have the option to earn a half million dollars and not pay any taxes on it. Like that's pretty substantial. And then the other way that's kind of the more common way to make money tax-free with real estate is like I was talking about maximizing that depreciation write-off. So rentals are passive by nature, meaning we don't pay payroll tax on them the way you do on your W-2 earnings or any self-employment earnings. And then we get to depreciate the building. And what that means is that each year you get to right off, like if you buy a house for $200,000, you probably only put 10 or 20% down. So you didn't actually even write a check for $200,000, 
most of it's financed, but then each year you get to write off a chunk of that $200,000 on your taxes, but there's no cash outflow. It didn't actually cost you any money during the year. So what this means is that with a lot of rentals, typically what you end up with is a situation where at the end of the year you've made, you know, maybe $5,000 from your rental property, but then we get to add in that depreciation write-off, which is just something on paper. Um, and if that's $7,000, then you've made $5,000, but for tax purposes, we get to show a loss of 7000 So you get to make more money while it's zeroed out, basically. You don't pay any additional taxes. And then in certain circumstances, if there's extra loss left over, you can even reduce your other forms of taxable income as well, like from your W-2 job. So rentals in general are a great way to earn income without it typically being subject to tax after we apply depreciation. Can, can you do me a favor? Because I really like that on the second one. Um, can you give me a just a real life example? Like just to say, hey, I bought this property for this much and here's, you know, here are my expenses. Here's my payment and here's how I was able to save. Is that something you could walk us through? Yeah. So um, kind of a common example I would see would be, so like I said, you can't depreciate land. So let's say you pay let's say the house is just under a hundred thousand. So with all your closing costs and things, it ends up being a hundred thousand dollars all in, right? That's the total amount you paid for this property. And then you check the county website and they say, oh, 30% of the value of this property is land and the other 70% is building. So what that means is now we get to depreciate 70% of that cost. So that's $70,000. And for a residential rental, we get to write that off across 27 and a half years. So you get to take about 127th of that $70,000 every year. So what this would look like is if for the year you had, you know, $10,000 in rents, and then you also get to write off any operating expenses. So any utilities you pay, maintenance, um, mortgage interest, taxes, um, any supplies for the property or for your um, operating of the property. So if after writing off all those things, we have $10,000 in rent, and then let's say you have a total of $8,000 in expenses. So it seems like we still have $2,000 left, but then we get to add in that depreciation amount. And the difference between that and your other expenses is you didn't you didn't write a check for that during the year. You know, that didn't cost you any more money. So $10,000 rents, $8,000 of operating expenses. So you have $2,000 of, of net taxable income at that point. But then let's say the depreciation amount for the year would be, so on $70,000, that would end up being about $2,500. So then we get to add that write off as well. And so that brings your income below zero to a loss of $500. So you've actually made, you know, a few thousand dollars at the end of the year, but for tax purposes, you actually get to show a loss. So that's how it works out for a lot of rentals. The longer you own it, um, as rents go up and stuff, then that can, end up being a little more profitable at the end of the year where you might still have a little bit of taxable income, but especially in the first 10 years you own a property, most people end up making money, having cash in pocket at end of year, but on taxes, having no taxable income from the that income earned directly related to the rental properties. That's wonderful. I mean, you start out and, and you're essentially, you make this investment and you work it out where it's tax-free for you for the first several years. And yet here's your, your investment that's appreciating in value over, over time uh, at the same time. It's, it's great. It's brilliant. I love it. Hmm. 
All right. Um, going, I want to go back to the first point real quick. So you said two years, right? That so, so essentially what you're doing is you're house flipping, but you just got to live in the property for, for the first two years. Is that correct? Yep, exactly. And this is um, a pretty, not, not common strategy, but it, it works really well. It's something, um, <clears throat> this is what like Mindy Jensen, who's the host of the Bigger Pockets Money podcast, this is what she does actually. And so, yeah, as long as you've occupied a property for two out of the last five years, when you sell it, that gain is typically tax-free. It's up to $500,000 that you get to exclude um, if you're married. So a lot of people will do this where to help kind of fund the purchase of rentals or just to kind of have additional income, you know, build up that savings is once every two years, if you move houses and you've fixed it up while you lived in it and you can now sell it for a profit, um, that profit's going to be tax-free versus if you just flipped it, it would be subject to ordinary income tax and self-employment taxes. And so getting to make, you know, 200, 300, $400,000 and not have it pay any tax is huge. Yeah, no, that's tremendous uh, long-term savings if you can just maintain that as your residence each and every time. It's uh, mm-hmm. be significant over time. Yeah. Okay, great. Oh, that's a great explanation. Thank you for that. Um, okay, I want to get into uh, something else a little bit here. So short-term rentals uh, it just seems to be all the craze lately. Investors are buying properties. They're turning them into short-term rentals, as we know, via Airbnb, VRBO. Uh, they've just been getting very popular the last several years. Now, there's also some investors that are renting out properties and then turning around and renting or subleasing them right back to tenants for shorter-term rates, and they're making money doing this. Um, I want to ask you specifically when it comes to short-term rentals, just because it's going so popular, when it comes to your taxes, anything you can share there, perhaps some other advantages or loopholes that investors might not be aware of when they're trying to do this? Yeah. So with short-term rentals, there's, it's kind of a, it's a highly understood topic in tax. So be really careful if you're going to try to use these loopholes with your professional and make sure that they're real estate specialized. Um, But basically with a short-term rental, if the guest stay, the average stay is seven days or less. And if you materially participate in the property and the IRS has seven different rules that you can, you just have to meet one of them to meet the definition of materially participating. Um, But as long as you meet those two qualifications, it changes the way it's taxed from passive income to technically non-passive. This doesn't subject you to any more tax, but what it does mean is that any losses you generate related to that property Um, aren't subject to a limit. So this means that you can combine that with a cost segregation study, which is basically something that front loads that depreciation. So it gives you a lot of write-off in the first year, first few years. Um, You can combine those two and create large deductible losses for the year. So with long-term rentals, you typically can't. Um, If you have a long-term rental with losses, if you earn more than $150,000 a year, there's a passive loss limit. You can't always use the loss to offset like your W-2 income or other income, but with short-term rentals where you materially participate, um, then you can take advantage of this loophole. This won't apply what you had kind of mentioned where people will rent a long-term property and then sublet it basically as short-term with that like Airbnb arbitrage. So that operates a little differently. Um, And depending on how that's structured, it's still reported as rental income, but the difference is you don't get a depreciation write-off. You don't own the building, so you don't get to write off the building. Um, instead, what you're writing off is just your 
rent expense each month for what you pay for the long-term monthly rents. And then your income is what you're collecting from short-term stays. So just slightly different tax treatment. But yeah, with short-term rentals, there is an, an excellent, um, I hate calling it a loophole because it's not, it's not really, it's just how the tax code is written. But there's um, something there where you are allowed to basically deduct the losses that you create tied to that property as long as it's set up correctly and you participate um, at a material level in the property. Okay, and so let's extrapolate on that. So the I understand you cannot do it via the obviously the leasing and then subleasing. That's not an option. But if you you purchase the property, you turn around and you turn it into a short term rental. Now, what's the you know what are some of the things that what makes you actively involved in it? And like walk me through an example, like similar to how you did before, where I purchased property X, and here's exactly how I'm you know, showing sort of this loss and, and, and my active participation and all that. Yeah, so there are seven different um, rules for material participation to the IRS. So you only have to meet one of them to meet this definition. And basically what it comes down to, the most common rules are that you spend at least 500 hours on the property. That's a really common one. Um, so that's one of the ways you can meet material participation. Another rule is that as long as you are spending more than a hundred hours on the property, but you're not, there's no one else spending any more time than you basically. So if you're only spending a hundred, but someone else is spending 200, then that won't work. But, um, those are the two most common rules that people use to meet that material participation definition. So essentially, as long as you're self-managing the property, um, there's a good chance you qualify. You just need to make sure that like your, your cleaner or your handyman or anyone like that isn't actually doing more, um, more work on it than you are spending more time on the property than you are for the year. So you just have to keep track of your hours. Oh, that's great insight. I'm sure a lot of people haven't heard this and they're just out there and they're buying these things and they're renting them back out and they just think I'm making my money, but this is um, a great way to just, you know, give yourself a, a, an extra little amount there that you wouldn't get. Um, what, what's a, what's an, can you give me a, an example? Just, uh, you know, I, I buy this property for $200,000. I short-term, uh, do a short-term rental. I'm spending 500 hours there. I'm doing the material participation. Show me the, how, give me a, a savings number. Like, what, how, how do I save? What am I saving? Yeah, so on average, <clears throat> a cost segregation study tends to break out about 25 to 30% of the building value to being deductible in that first year um, or being qualified for bonus depreciation. So that's going to change a little bit this year because it used to be anything bonus depreciation, you could write off 100% the first year for 2023, that dropped down to 80%. But it's still a really large chunk you get to write off in that early year. So like in that earlier example I gave on that um, $100,000 property with $70,000 being um, the building amount and your annual write-off was about $2,500. If instead we had $70,000 of building value and we were able to take 25% of that, um, that would be just over a $17,000 instead of you know $2,500. So that first year you would get to write off $17,000 of income. So in the earlier example, um, you only had an extra $500 of expense from income. So you still were getting negative. You weren't going to pay any taxes on that. But with the short-term loophole, if instead you can now use any additional losses against your other income, 
and we can create the $17,000 loss. So now what you have is, you know, if you're in that same exact situation, that same rental as before, but now we have a $17,000 loss after, you know, we account for all expenses and the cost segregation and bonus depreciation and all of that good stuff. And if from your W-2 job, you made, you know, $27,000 that year, we now get to offset that by the $17,000 loss and it would drop your taxable income to $10,000. Or if you'd made $100,000, it would be able to offset that by $17,000. So with the short-term loophole, the difference is that we can create a larger loss in those early years. You can with long-term rentals too. It just doesn't benefit you. Um, but you would purposefully create this larger loss and then you get to use it to literally reduce your taxable income from other sources, such as your W-2 job or any other um, forms of business you have. Oh, this is a major advantage to the short-term rentals, actually, what, what you just stated. That's that's amazing. Really good stuff. Hmm. Wow. Um, Natalie, I got to say, after listening to you, I don't advise anyone to make an investment without calling you first because <laughs> you got a lot of knowledge there. I learned a lot. That's, uh, that's great. That's great. Um, tell us what is the best way, how, how can people get in contact with you? Yeah, absolutely. So the best way to find me, um, you can follow me on social, on um, Instagram. I'm R-E tax strategist. And then there's just underscores between each of the words. Um, on YouTube, I'm real estate tax strategist. My website's retaxstrategist.com. Um, so any of those places you can find me. Um, you can also find me on Bigger Pockets on the forums and in the community Facebook groups there too. Um, and then I also do have my own Facebook group. If you're looking to just kind of ask real estate related tax questions, that's just called real estate tax strategies. And so you can um, join the group as well and kind of ask any of your real estate related tax questions in there and chat with other investors. It's terrific. I love it. Thank you uh, very much, Natalie. I appreciate you coming on all the information. And um, yeah, yeah, this was great. Thank you very, very much. Perfect. Yeah. Um, thanks so much for having me. It was really nice to get to chat about this. Was she great or what? Uh, reach out to her. I think she's got a wealth of knowledge, and I think she just scratched the surface on what she knows um, and what she can help you with. Uh, that's it for today. Bring me your questions and comments to mark at thesleepgroup.com. You can DM me at the Sleep Group on Instagram. Don't forget to check out the other podcast we have, Inspirational Minute with Mark. You can also read more from me. Check out my original content at thepersonalpagemedium.com slash at Mark Salib. And if you are a real estate agent, reach out. Let me know how I can help you set and accomplish your goals. Leave a rating for the show. Subscribe to help others find the show and be informed and educated about the real estate market just like you. See you on the next Real Estate Market Minute podcast.